Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. I first encountered today's guest, Marina Benjamin, when I was researching the book of The Shift and stumbled across her memoir, The Middle Pause. An insightful look at what middle age means today. It was prompted by Marina's own sudden menopause after a hysterectomy, and the sense of dislocation that she describes in that book was the first time I'd ever seen the way I was feeling right then, put down in black and white. She followed it up with insomnia, clues in the name, and has now completed her loose midlife trilogy with a little give. A stunning book about the unsung, unseen, undone work women do. And what happens when we tire of being a human rehab centre for every single person around us? I inhaled this book, dog-earing page after page after page and internally yelling yes. I'm pretty sure you will too. Women have internalised a lot of myths, I suppose, patriarchal myths that have kind of followed us from the 20th century into the 21st, like this idea, for example, that somehow men's work is more important. Marina joined me to talk about emotional labour, why cleaner guilt doesn't seem to affect men, strange, time poverty and resting control of the to-do ticker tape. We also discussed why women's manual work is invisible, but men's is a skill, how to get maximum benefit from your feminist inner critic, the two-way pain of caring for elderly parents, and why you should always, always run towards yourself. Well, thank you for coming on The Shift, Marina. As I was just saying to you, I'm looking here at a very, very battered proof of a little give, and I couldn't even count the number of pages that I've dog-eared, which I think, I don't know, I think it might be a first. Let's start by talking about a little give. What was it that prompted you to decide to write about the kind of, I suppose, the economy of care or emotional washing up, as you brilliantly put it, that kind of is underpins most women's lives? 
I didn't originally have a formal idea of writing about this. I had been writing about it almost in spite of myself or behind my own back. I had been kind of accumulating thoughts on this and short writings on this in a folder that I called, you know, I say semi-jokingly, sex work. Um, <laughs> and then we went to the Sydney Writers' Festival in 2019 with the second book in this trilogy of midlife. And um, and I was chatting with the writer Keridun Dovey and she just said to me one sort of sunny, bright afternoon where we were kind of being our performative writer, professional selves. Have you ever thought of writing that housework? And it was, I really gulped, you know, pulled me up short because I'm one of these people, I'm a very bad liar. And immediately I felt like what was visible on my face as, and <laughs> was, was all these secret files I've been keeping on exactly this subject. And I still, I didn't take it seriously until lockdown arrived, really. And I, with everyone else, sort of absolutely fed up with my own company. Everywhere I turned, there I was. So I thought it was time to sit down and write. And uh, it felt entirely appropriate to write about life in the home since we were stuck in the home. And so it felt like a, a good marriage between circumstance and interest. And I felt that I would be able to do it justice, perhaps in a way that had never gelled before. I'm one of those writers who often keeps lots of things on file. For me, it was easy to sort of, in a way, pull together various threads and then expand them. Did you have that experience during lockdown that so many women talk about? They felt absolutely thrown back into that. They were either, you know, felt like they were running a canteen, that they were cooking and cleaning, and they were the one working at the kitchen table, you know, where their husband was working in the spare room because his work was somehow more important than theirs, whether it was or wasn't. Did you have that sort of experience of lockdown? I didn't, actually, but I was very aware of those women who did because it just highlighted how much of that work we typically outsource. Professional women outsource that work, and mostly they don't give it a second thought. And I think maybe lockdown forced women to reflect on how much of that labour that typically gets outsourced, whether it's to teachers or nannies or schools or cleaners. And those were the dynamics I got interested in exploring. I have an older child, so they were very actually weirdly keen on lockdown, an <laughs> early independent learner who wasn't wild about learning in school and actually found their own rhythm with a computer and the dog and knitting and the bed as a kind of mini world or raft through COVID. So they took care of themselves. I had a husband who turned into a baker and mine did too. <laughs> did you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, where did this come from? I mean, we were all, always aware of how fortunate we were because we had a house and we had jobs that we could transfer online. Um, and so both, actually, both my husband and I did quite a bit of voluntary work during lockdown. I was reading with real interest about women with younger children than mine who were exactly thrown back into probably more work than they'd ever had before because they had to make do without the outsourced labour. But then mm. I became very in, in the dynamics of outsourcing and who had privilege and who could hire other women and the guilt and the angst that you have around that idea that you, in hiring another woman to work for you and take care of your domestic mess, just as much an oppressor as capitalism, that you're somehow in cahoots with the oppressive system. So, yeah, those dynamics really interested me and I talk about them quite explicitly in the book. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because even just in a couple of minutes of having that conversation, we've already reverted to women who outsource those things to other women. I would do that instinctively and you just did it. And 
pretty much everyone I know would do it. And it's like you really sum that up when you're talking about cleaner guilt. Because if you ever want to see, well, there are lots of things that cause fights on Twitter. But one of the things that causes fights on Twitter is when women start talking about cleaners. And there's always the row between, and I'm saying the feminists, but I mean that loosely, the feminists who are like, I'm not going to do the cleaning at the cleaners, is it? And the other feminists who say, you know, you're persecuting other women. Persecuting is not the right word, but you know what I mean. Capitalising off other women by employing them to do your cleaning. And at no point does anybody ever say, where are the men in all this? Do men ever worry about this? Do men have cleaner guilt or do they just pay the cleaner and go about their day? Exactly. If they even think about it. Exactly. And I think the conundrum with that is that both positions are true. You are exploiting another woman. I mean, you are also buying your feminist freedom to determine yourself in the world. And the problem is they sit in contradiction. And that's a very fruitful place, actually, for a writer to sit, I think, if you're addressing these subjects, is to sit with and talk around and write around those contradictions. Because I think there are some inescapable truths that we would all admit to, which is that women are time poor. Whether you're a professional woman or you are part of the gig economy who is trying to make ends meet, maybe you're working three jobs, whatever, you are time poor. And this work, this work in the house, this raising of children, this looking after of parents, this cleaning and maintenance, the endless labor of it doesn't go away. It just doesn't go away. And in some ways, you know, there are no easy solutions. You know, women are eternally, what does Sylvia Federici call it in the, in the what she calls it the privatized kitchen bedroom battle between partners about who does this work so yeah it's perennially there and I don't think on the political realm the politics of housework has kind of progressed very much since the 1980s really no it doesn't feel like it has does it I mean I remember seeing a younger woman who I won't name because I find her quite scary (laughs) on Twitter when one of these conversations was happening about cleaners and she got really angry and she was just saying why don't they just make their husbands participate and I thought well yeah I totally totally agree with you but you obviously grew up in a different generation with different parents and so what looks like progress and feels like progress to us looks like retrograde regressive to you I guess do you think it's improving it's changing or not I think there were some improvements made kind of a few decades ago really (laughs) you know when men woke up to the fact that they would lose their feminist partners if they didn't step up and or in fact that they'd maybe get laid more if they were more feminist or did more in the house that it actually made them more not less attractive but I think actually seriously women have internalized a lot of myths I suppose patriarchal myths that have kind of followed us from the 20th century into the 21st like this idea for example that somehow men's work is more important and that if anybody's going to have to compromise on the home front it should be the woman Um, because he works so much harder and for longer hours that his leisure time is therefore more important and needs to be guarded. I mean there are kind of niggling assumptions people would never say these things but when it comes to those negotiations the privatized kitchen bedroom battle these are the assumptions that get mobilized these are the things that produce I think real kind of enmity between couples I mean I'm really curious to know actually whether same-sex couples have the same sorts of rows laughingly the cliche is that you know gay men have the cleanest houses because both of them are equally invested 
in style and design and, you know, good living. But maybe it's not just a cliche. Maybe it's actually the case. Maybe, you know, gay couples are better at negotiating this territory. When I was writing The Shift, I saw some American research about the happiness housework equation. And I think it, without actually like rummaging around my shelves and finding it, trying to remember, I think it said it was something like women in heterosexual relationships are the least happy, men in heterosexual relationships are the most happy, and then men in gay relationships are the next happy, and then women in lesbian relationships. That research was quite binary still. But it wasn't a surprise to me at all, not even slightly. You know, my relationship is pretty good. There are things that he does and things that I do. And they do slightly fall into like boy job and girl job categories, even though neither of us are like that. And I might be more likely to notice that we've run out of something. He always takes the bins out, you know, those kind of things. But even in that relationship, you do find those things... They're still there, aren't they? They are still there. And I put it down to unconscious programming, I think, because, you know, like you, I have a partner who's very conscious about pulling his weight around the house. But the kind of jobs that he takes on are the ones that, well, I can see that this needs doing, so let me do it. Whereas I think the kind Mm. of low that I take on is deeply unconscious. It's like... You know, I wake up and my brain's tick, 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 ticking with all those things like what's in the fridge, do the sheets need cleaning, have have I taken care of the master to do the garden, who do I have to call today, is my mum okay, you know. It's like suddenly I'm assailed by about, you know, a dozen discordant thoughts of things that have to be done, like this underlying, it's like there's a kind of underlying unconscious ticker tape running through my mind of all the things that, and I don't think my husband has that, you know. I just think he looks at the drain that's blocked and he thinks, I'll do that tomorrow <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean I, my husband listens to this so I don't want to get into trouble but I do think when I've been away for work the fridge will be empty when I get back because if there isn't anything there he'll have just eaten cheese biscuits and he's the cook as well he's very much the cook I can't cook to save my life life he's a great cook but if he's been away I don't think the fridge is empty when he comes back but I might try that out next time and see see what happens I don't know it's so interesting how far you think you've come and then you look and you realize that you haven't but I wonder you make an observation about your parents and just as an aside I have to say please write that book about your dad because I really want to read it he sounds so fascinating when you talk about your parents and and not being under any illusion that your mum was the capable one and the reliable one and you hear that quite a lot from people about their parents but also as people get a bit older you do start to see it in your friends relationships as well you know oh I'll do that because I'll do it properly or you know he won't do it right or whatever what is that is that like an attempt to reclaim some power what do you think it is I think it's a reaction against something that men have done for a long time, which feminists used to call studied incompetence. So they would sort of say, oh, I can't cook or I'm no good at ironing or, you know, some woman would pick up the slack. And so I think that partly it's a response to that. It's partly a response to, well, you know, I'll make a swift job of it and I'll do it well. 
and then I don't have to think about it anymore and I don't have to nag anyone. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the woman is always steering very, in a serpentine fashion between kind of one alarm bell and another, you know, is she going to be a nag? Is she going to be wasting her time getting a man to do it? Might she be better off just, you know, swallowing it and doing it herself? Is he really incompetent or just pretending? And then she'll hate herself for these competencies, or at least I do, resent myself for these competencies mm. have that I don't value because society doesn't value them. Do I want them? I mean, those were the questions in a way that was underpinning this book. I think I came to some unexpected answers. I think I was not necessarily, I think I start off in a place of real grumbling discontent and <laughs> I move to a place of um, a different place, really. But maybe I shouldn't talk about that. I don't know. <laughs> Even though the book is, a, I think it's fair to say, a kind of a your own working out of your own situation. I don't think it's possible to spoil, really, because whilst each chapter adds up to a whole, each chapter is kind of discreet in itself as well in the way it looks at, you know, caring or feeding or cleaning. Those are the ones that spring to mind. But those things all, they all add up to a whole. And, and almost all of those things are things that are not socially valued. And if men do them, I mean, you make an interesting point right at the beginning, like probably when you were grumpy about the fact that, you know, if a man does a manual thing, it's a skill or a craft. You know, it's like, you know, my dad is a bricklayer, a builder, and he built houses all throughout my childhood and he built houses. You know, it's like, oh my God, he built a house and we lived in a house that he built. But day in, day out, women do the invisible work of housework and cleaning and cooking. Cooking not in the chef sense, but cooking in the feeding, the day-to-day feeding sense. But I think that's so interesting, the way that almost like whatever a man's job is, it becomes a skill. That's so sharp. I agree entirely. I mean, I, I think... You know, I quoted, I think I quoted Heidegger talking about the work of the hand, did, yeah. you know, this artisanal instrument that can do things like bake and create and throw pots and build houses. You know, whereas the women's hands, you look at a, a woman who works in the home and her hands are chafed and rough and dry and desperate for hand cream because they're in the sink half the time or, you know. <laughs> Uh, covered in bleach or chopping vegetables and, she, and she's got scrapes and cuts and my grandmother's arms and hands were perpetually um, covered in little burn marks from the kitchen but you're so right you know in housework the hand is dumb I think I say that at one point the housework the hand is not this artisan thing it's just a dumb tool yeah. I mean how is your attitude to all of this kind of emotional labor how has it changed as you've probably during the writing of the book, but also as you've got older, as you've kind of come into your 50s? Sometimes I feel like I write my own bitter pill to swallow so that I have to tell myself that it's better because I've written that it gets better. Um, <laughs> but I would be lying if I said that I still didn't resent it deeply or didn't feel that my kind of feminist public self was compromised by the amount of housework I do or the obsessiveness that I sometimes approach it with. So there's that. There's sitting with those difficult feelings of feeling thwarted every time I do it. But I was also trying to ask myself, the other side of the coin, of course, is if you don't take care of loved ones, what would your life be like if you were blinkered, if, if you imagined or you hired people to do everything for you, or sourced out all your int intimate labor, what kind of person would you be? And I don't think you'd be a very empathetic, responsive, giving person. There's a lot running through the book. There's a lot of reflection on this idea of what it means to be a giver and what it means to be a taker and what kind of person, where's the balance? What kind of person should you be? 
could you be? Should you aspire to be? And the bottom line for me is, you know, would I choose to be without the entanglements in my life, the enmeshments with the people I love? No, I would not. So even if the price is that I end up doing a lot of the carrying, I would rather do that than not do it at all. One thing that upsets me every time I see it, but it's just sprung to mind, is Shulamit Firestone's last days, kind of. She was she died alone in her flat, wasn't found for days, was terribly depressed and ignored in her old age, didn't have a good old age. And I just thought, my God, is that what happens when you're true to your feminist principles? Are you so isolated from reality? Is there no one who cares for you or who for you care for who will kind of make your last days enjoyable? And I mean, that felt like a kind of almost like a kind of feminist fairy tale warning of how not to live. Yeah. Is that what happens if you do that? Or is that what happens if you do that if you're a certain sort of person? I mean, she was pretty fierce, wasn't she? She was a pretty scary woman. Yes, but I also think that that second wave feminism was deeply uncompromising. I mean, it's in vogue because it has fantastic bottom line arguments against capitalism and because the patriarchy has come back into vogue again as the enemy. So we're using a language now that was much more, we're much more indebted to that language of the 70s feminists. But there was very little room for compromise in their lives. I think I I talk about at one point how I really understand why those feminists often didn't have children, why they felt they had Mm. to act by their feminist thinking in this incredibly rigorous way. I understand the circumstances that gave rise to that because I think that they felt that their feminism and the freedoms that it gave them were so precarious that if they put one foot wrong, they'd be sucked back into the kind of, you know, 1950s style feminism that they'd emerged from. Whereas I think you were asking about progress earlier. I think maybe women now feel more comfortable with contradiction and compromise because they understand that it's a necessary necessary part of living in a world where feminism hasn't kind of given them everything that they should have. So where we still have gender pay gaps, where we still have lack of childcare provision, where we still have appalling care for elders so that it frequently falls on the on the shoulders of middle-aged women. In a world like that, compromise is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the kind of old thing, isn't it, where they're having it all, the kind of 80s generation of feminists, which is what would be me, that kind of having it all thing, what, you know, the, I think the younger women have, can see clearly, and we can see clearly now, but it's kind of... I don't want to say it's too late for us, but it kind of is. That having it all means doing it all. Because you have changed your way of being and you you may have a high-flying career and have had children and have it all. But that only works if the other person in the equation is absolutely doing 50% of the load. And when I was talking to Catherine May a couple of episodes ago and she said, you know, let's not forget that as many men have children as women, but they're not having these conversations. So some things have changed and some things just absolutely haven't. And what that's resulted in is a load of really burnt out, angry women. Yeah, no, that's a really good insight. I think that's true. And I think what you just said is absolutely spot on that having it all means doing it all. You know, you have to ask yourself which battles are worth fighting. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or 
anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I think it's very difficult, even with the most enlightened, most well-meaning, most participatory men. It's still difficult. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking, actually, and we were, we're obviously both talking from a position of, of privilege, which it shouldn't be, where we are both in relationships with supportive, well-meaning men who pull their weight. You know, there are a lot of women who aren't, as lockdown showed, but ugh, I'm not sure where we go from there, really. But I was thinking, I mean, you talk about your feminist inner critic in A Little Give. And I remember so vividly a discussion of that in the middle pause as well, because at the time I read that, I was having that exact conversation with myself. You know, I feel shit. I don't know who I am anymore. I'm losing it. I've got no confidence, got no self-esteem. I've got brain fog. You know, I can't sleep. All of those things. Logic tells me to try HRT, but my inner feminist tells me I'll be a bad feminist if I do it. Have you managed to overcome that kind of inner critic that has taken on the feminist mantle? To some degree, I think I have. To some degree, I think that's one of the benefits of kind of entering your 50s and kind of accommodating. And one of the things that I do kind of, oh, I was going to use the word preach, advocate, let's say, in this book, <laughs> is for self-acceptance. I think that feminism has spent too long on the home goal of kind of, of freedom and self-actualization. And I think that that embroils you in more kind of fraughtness and contradiction then perhaps is comfortable. I'm coming down on the side of, of contradiction in this book more and self-acceptance and complaint, living with complaint, not necessarily thinking that everything is going to have an instant solution, but nonetheless always being ready to voice the complaint because the complaint is a call to action. My inner feminist critic serves a more emotional job these days. So she's not so much whispering in my ear or shouting at me when I'm cleaning the kitchen floor or spending hours cooking a meal. But she's there when, I, when I'm when i lacking in self-confidence, when I don't think I deserve to take a place in the public world or to ask for promotion or to push myself forward. That's when my feminist inner critic is most useful. And then she's uh, really useful. Then she's really useful. Yeah, yeah. I call her my stompy, sweaty avatar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which everybody needs a stompy, sweaty avatar. To give you a good kick. Are you okay to talk about caring for your mother? Because I think that that is something that comes up so much with the women I I talk to that they're kind of just as you reach. Well, it depends at what age you had, if you had children, what age you had them, you know, all of those different factors come into play. But just as you reach a point of maybe being able to take a bit of time for yourself and start to think about what you want the next, if you're lucky, 40 years or so of your life to look like, the kind of parental 
caring comes into play. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of caring for your mother? Yeah, um, it's interesting because that chapter on caring for my mum was, I would say, the hardest chapter to write because I tasked myself with being honest in that chapter. And I don't think either of us come off well. I think that the realities of a caring situation where you are required to kind of tamp down the self in order to be present for another is bristling with all kinds of hidden resentments and tensions. And I think also that being cared for and living every day while recognizing that you are dependent on others, that you are forced into situations of kind of dependence and unwanted intimacy and a recognition that your abilities are failing up is equally awful. And so you put two people who are in compromised, already compromised situations together in a relationship that has this kind of practically oriented goal and you know it's going to be nothing but fireworks and so in a way I was writing against the idea that oh isn't it lovely that we look after our elders and you know oh isn't it wonderful if we can kind of take our elders in and you know have that multi-generational closeness and um, you know they can live in the extension or the annex and it would all be wonderful for everyone and the grandchildren have grandparents and so on and I'm thinking who are you kidding is this is not the reality of caring for most people. The reality is that you have to squash yourself into deeply uncomfortable shapes to be there for another person and you have to prioritize their needs ahead of your own and you have to make basic sacrifices like you know say in the book how many times I'd, I'll not be able to shower or I have to you know put my mother's needs before my child's needs or you know again that extra level of kind of administrative kind of constant administrative caretaking that I do so not just of the person but of her life of the hold the prop up the life and pretend that nothing's changing when all the while I know it's only getting worse and worse. It's an extraordinary relationship. I had no idea what I was walking into <laughs> and I'm the only one doing it as well. So I think when it's shared, it may not be so kind of all absorbing and threatening to your sanity. But when it falls on the shoulders of one child, I think it's really difficult. And I also wanted to explore, you know, it really is a two-way thing. I wanted to look at kind of what that caring relationship, what being in that caring relationship does to the psyche of the one being cared for as well, because I don't think it's wholly positive. I think the effects of being cared for have lots of negative consequences, and I wanted to talk about those too, and I hadn't seen them being written about anywhere. So yeah, it was a it was a hard chapter to write, and um, very difficult, because I didn't want to kind of expose my mother unnecessarily and yet I couldn't write it without exposing her so um yeah not easy uh, no I think it's a brilliant chapter and I'm not in this situation but my husband was with his father who died during lockdown and so much of it resonated and there's a part of the chapter where you talk about the fact that you kind of disguised what you do for your mother so well that nobody notices including her and she says to you what do you even do and that was so interesting because I interviewed someone last year and she was she got while she was talking to me she got so angry she was saying I had literally just wiped her bum she's like what do you think I do you know and the next morning I woke to this like barrage of texts from this poor woman saying oh my god please cut that because I sound so heartless and brutal now I didn't think that she sounded heartless and brutal but I can see how she felt like oh have some feeling for this woman but you know it seems to be that some parents feel bad about it and they feel a bit guilty and so that manifests as a kind of a slightly conflicting and slightly aggressive maybe but there are others who take it as their entitlement like as their due and they don't really see anything wrong at all 
I think my mother is uh, is both those things. So she'll say, I don't want to burden you. Thank you so much. I don't want to burden you. She doesn't say it very often, but she does every now and then. But then on the other hand, there's no one else. So when push comes to shove, it's this is how it is. There is no other way. And she has refused steadfastly to move into a nursing home. And she's very close to that point where really she ought to be in a home. And I feel like I've been peddling furiously to help fulfill her wish of not moving to a home. But again, you know, it's like stretching an elastic band, you know, at some point that that elastic band is going to break. And so you do feel like you're on this knife edge all the time. You know, I find myself vowing till I'm, you know, red in the face that I will not make my child do this for me. And I fully intend not to. I fully intend to make provisions and think about my old age. When I do kind of put my mother in a corner or get her philosophically in a corner, as it were, she'll say, she'll shrug her shoulders and she'll say, I never thought this would happen to me. That's what makes me want to go crazy and tear my hair out. What makes you think that you're going to be exempt from this process that everybody goes through? You know, how could you not think it would happen to you? Maybe that's a third kind of parent, not the one who thinks they deserve it or the one who thinks they're the burden, but the one who's just determinedly hiding in denial. Circumstances outrun them. Yeah, I absolutely understand why someone would refuse to move, you know, and not want to be dependent and not to swap their big house for the big garden for, you know, a one or two bedroom flat in a sheltered accommodation or, or whatever. But at the same time, when that's only maintained by other people dropping everything and running around all the time to ensure that they can. I suppose, what's the line? And you have to kind of, I don't know, you'd like to think that you would never do that. But I wonder if, like you say, it creeps up on you. Yeah, I think it does. I think because everything you do as you age is to work towards maintaining your independence. It's tiny little incremental changes that you make. You know, maybe you retreat a bit more from the world. Maybe you get props, you know, you get a wheelchair, you get a cane. Maybe you get hearing aid. Maybe, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which there's a little fix for this and a little fix for that. And you somehow persuade yourself that you can continue. I mean, I have known elderly people who've kind of broken hips or had concussion or fallen down and, you know, the stairs and still persuaded themselves that so long as they can actually stand up and put one foot in front of the other, they're not going to move. I'm trying to be a bit clear-eyed about it. You know, I'm trying to look at it and say, well, what are the genuine trade-offs here? What would you, because where does this go? This goes to a very unpleasant place because we all know, unfortunately, the NHS can't really cope with geriatrics with terrible injuries. You know, they enter a limbo land where they can't go home and there's no room for them in hospices or rehabilitation centres. And it's this kind of nightmare of lack of provision. So either you take care of your future so that you don't end up in that kind of black hole of lack of care, you know, or someone else picks it up for you. Yeah, I mean, I think in the book, I sort of say, you know, I look at my mother and I think, well, it's great that she wants her independence but the truth of it is how independent is she really at 90 she's not you know that it's an illusion propped up largely by me but also by all these gadgets that she's got and the hired help that she now has in place to help care for her oh has she Uh, cracked finally she cracked yeah she cracked she had to she fell and i think that sort of scared the bejesus out of her and she finally agreed but even that you know that another little prop another little lease of life it doesn't it doesn't um, continue. But I think I asked the very kind of bold question, which is, what would you rather have, this illusory autonomy or company? And so for me, in the end, I think even though I don't want to kind of lose lose autonomy, um, I'd take company and camaraderie. <laughs> it's a kind of impossible choice. But then so are so many of the choices that, you know, that women make around their own lives at this stage. 
It's interesting because we speak so much and write so much and then, you know, like we're swimming in books about motherhood and how to be a mother and all that. But nobody talks about how to be a daughter. Yeah, really. It's so true. I think this is just beginning to impinge on people's consciousness that it is another thing, that it's a thing worth writing about and worth thinking about. I think there's a little bit of, of it around and it's a very interesting area, I think, especially what it means if you are a, a feminist daughter of a non-feminist mother <laughs> or even a feminist mm. daughter of a feminist mother. I mean, those things are really interesting. What do you inherit? What do you owe each other? What do you share? What do you not share? I think it's really interesting. I ask myself at the end of the day, really, with this caring role that I now have with my 90-year-old mum, I want it to be the case that I won't have anything to reproach myself with after her long life, that I will say, I did my best, did what I could do. And maybe I'll make have made mistakes along the way. And maybe my patients will have been afraid. And maybe I'll have snapped at her more than I should have. But if I've done the real work, and I've done it lovingly, then I won't be reproaching myself. And that's the, the most that you can ask of yourself really isn't it i think so i think so and it's a bit like the housework which is you know you can outsource some of it but if you absent yourself from it entirely what kind of person are you it's interesting the question that i ask at the end the how many fucks do you give question the response to that is always so interesting because so often people initially say no and then they back none and then they backtrack but i can't remember who it was someone i was speaking to I remember them saying, what kind of person gives no fucks? And I think it's that, that's the constant dilemma, isn't it? And I I wonder what part being brought up female plays in that, if any. Yeah, I suppose giving no fucks is an achievement if you're a particular kind of woman. It's an end place that you might kind of journey to and it will be a hard place to arrive at. And so you will cherish giving no fucks. But I'm definitely not on that side of things in this book because I'm asking really, what do you lose at the end of the day? What do you lose if you entirely remove yourself from that world of care and the labours of love and these essential kind of duties that I think humanize us and bond us together and tie us one to the other and make us aware that every right we have might encroach on another person's freedom. So I'm much more these days, I'm less about individual freedom and I'm more about the collective. I'm more about kind of, you know, what kind of network societies should we build that give people the latitude to move without damaging one another, but without also curtailing their own ambitions? How do we arrange the hierarchy of obligations so that we fulfill the duties to those we're closest to. And where did those duties end? What do we owe strangers? I'm really interested in that. I and mean, that came out in that chapter on feeding when I talk about working at the soup kitchen. You know, where do those, I wouldn't even call them demands of connection. I would just call them the, really a need for connection. Where, where does it end? And I was really interested in exploring, exploring that. Because if you don't value the unknown other, then you end up, unfortunately, I think, not believing that their needs are as great as your own. Also, where we come back to which is kind of where the book starts and ends and goes all the way through the middle is those things still feel to me like they apply more to women than men and that's almost the kernel I don't know whether problem's the right word the kernel of it is that well women are feeling like this it's like yes what kind of person gives no fucks but if the only way to not do all of the work all of the time 
because you're the woman who's worrying about it and the man isn't. Where do we go from there? Well, I think that's why I decided to keep Simone de Beauvoir for the very end of the book, to kind yeah. of you know, tackle her at the end. <laughs> we need to embrace transcendence as women in the same way that men embrace transcendence. We need to haul ourselves out of the muck and we need to stop doing this lowly work and live the life of the mind because that way we will find existential fulfillment. And I have had to say at the end, no. Not only is it the most entitled, privileged position, it's a bit like Virginia Woolf's incredibly entitled position, you know, a room of your own, you know, it relies on so much privilege. I have to say, no, there is something to be gained from the world of eminence, to use de Beauvoir's term, you know, for being embroiled and enmeshed with stuff and people and dirt <laughs> and life. And that, you know, maybe women have something more about them by having one foot there and one foot in transcendence. Or maybe there's something valuable in embracing that friction of having one foot there and one foot somewhere else. And I really believe that, actually. It wasn't a mere intellectual exercise, just kind of putting on some boxing gloves and going in the ring with de Beauvoir. That's a scary thing to do. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't actually yeah. believe, believe what I was saying. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. Um, what's your emotional age? Well, that's a difficult question because I do this awful thing now that I'm getting older. It's almost like to defer the pain of actually arriving at the next birthday. I round up rather than round down. So my emotional age, unfortunately, always seems to be one year ahead of where I actually am. <laughs> so if you're coming up to a big birthday, you would spend the whole previous year adjusting to being that age before you are. Talk about crossing a bridge before you get to it, honestly. I know, I know. Actually, that, yeah, that pretty much sums me up. I've crossed all the bridges before, before I get to them. Yeah, yeah. Give us a book recommendation. So it can be something that has been significant in your life, or it can just be something good that you read recently. I'll go for an author, I think, since we're talking about memoir. I absolutely love everything that Vivian Gornick writes. I think she's the most remarkable, most um, brave inward journeyer. There's very little, I think, that she wouldn't write about herself with the idea of being truthful. So she's my kind of guide, really. Brilliant. What advice would you give younger women? Oh, well, I, I this is easy for me because I actually put a bit of this in the book. You know, what I would say, I've got this imagined scene where I imagine my child kind of returning to the house, this childhood home, sort of many years later. And what would be the things that I would want them to think? And it would be that complaint is a valuable thing because it leads to action, that it's no bad thing to have the impress of an original wound, that self-acceptance is more important than or as important as self-actualization, and that it's as important to have heart as it is to have intellect and to run towards themselves. That all makes perfect sense. And I love that, run towards yourself. Who is your old bird role model? So an older woman who inspires you? Oh, gosh, it's hard to pick one, actually. Um, there are so many. Well, Sylvia Federici would be up there. Yeah, she wrote Wages Against Housework. She was kind of um, this trailblazing feminist. And um, and then actually, you know, her interest evolved over time. So she wasn't just associated with that, that one um, idea or a piece of thinking or polemic. She's one of these writers who's evolved, whose intellects evolved. 
I guess Simone de Beauvoir would never get away from de Beauvoir, always go back to de Beauvoir. She seemed to anticipate so much of the whole of the rest of feminist history. It's like we've never escaped her and she still feels relevant and she's still the person to take issue with if you want to take issue with somebody. It's always mm-hmm. better to go back to. Brilliant. What's your superpower? I'm the nibbler. Um, my superpower is to eat everything that's around incrementally and invisibly nobody knows it's going or where it's going (laughs) is that like calories nibbled don't count something like that Um, and last one, how many fucks do you give? I would say I give a lot of fucks, actually. Yeah, writing this book has made me realise that. I would say as I go through life, there's more that I care passionately about than less that I care passionately about. And I feel more politicised, perhaps, than I was when I was in the trenches of motherhood, where those things were not on my radar as much. But having come into later life now, I feel as kind of energised politically as I did in my 20s. Mm. You know, I don't do the straightforward thing in this book of this 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 critic has said this about housework and this critic has said that about housework I didn't want that style of book but I think I go to all those places yeah thank you so much it's been it's been such a great conversation Sam it's been lovely a complete privilege and an honor to be on this show thank you thank you for listening you can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.